Assalamu alaikum and welcome to IFG's podcast, Millionaire Muslim. And today I'm very excited to be interviewing a uh, stalwart of the Islamic finance and generally the Muslim community at large, uh, Muhammad Amin, uh, who is ex-PWC, uh, accountancy background. Uh, you've been very involved in community activities, both politically but also charitable. Uh, and you know, there's a whole host of things that you've been involved in. I was looking at the list of organizations that you've at some point or another either touched or been involved in or advised mm. and it's a long list and it's a very varied list so I'm really excited to you know uh, get into that and share with our audience uh, some of your learning I think that'll be really useful but before we get into you know all of that stuff it'd be really interesting to hear what you get up to today and um, you know how do you see uh, what you do t these days well like Islam I retired from PricewaterhouseCoopers almost Ten years ago now, at the end of 2009, when I was just over the age of 59. And I never wanted to retire so I could spend more time watching television, going on a holiday, gardening, etc. And I realized what I wanted to do with the rest of my life about seven years prior to that. And it was on, when I was on Hajj. And the day that you stand at Arafat, you're supposed to ask for blessings. And asking for good health for yourself, your family, your wife, world peace, etc., takes you about five minutes. Yeah. And then what do you do for the rest of the day? Because you can't leave. You can't say, I've asked for everything I possibly want to ask for. So you stay there and you think. And I became aware of, more strongly than I had been at any other stage in my life, of how incredibly good God has been to me. On the one hand, I grew up in a family that was financially very poor. My parents were illiterate, my dad was a manual worker. But on the other hand, they absolutely doted on me my parents stayed together until they died and I've had a very, very easy life. I mm -hmm. sailed through my primary school, my teachers were very attentive, caring. You grew up in Manchester? I grew up in Manchester from the age of one and three quarters. I was born in Pakistan, but I came to Manchester with my mother. My father was already here at the age of one and three quarters. And at the age of three, I was dragged off to nursery and until then I didn't speak a word of English because at home I only spoke yeah. Punjabi with my parents and that's the only language I spoke with my parents until they died. Yeah. So in those days the UK everywhere had an 11 plus exam which we still have in certain parts of the country. I sailed through that, I went to a state grammar school, I did very well in my A-levels. The grammar school, the way that it was organised made it very easy to apply to Oxford and Cambridge because our school, we did some O-levels in the fourth year, then skipped the fifth year entirely, went straight into the sixth form with A-levels, which meant that you do your A-levels one year early. So I had the benefit of applying to universities already knowing my A-level results. Mm. And in that third year, you're able to apply to Oxford or Cambridge, do the Cambridge entrance exams, got called for an interview, uh, 
until then, I'd never seen Cambridge and went into Cambridge. It's your first time into Cambridge at that First point. time ever to visit, visiting Cambridge. I'd been, before that, I simply knew of it as a very high prestige university, the yeah. best university. But if I hadn't got in, I would have gone to somewhere else like Sussex and that would have been fine. But once I saw the place and was interviewed there, I knew I'd be heartbroken if I didn't get in. Mm. So I was overwhelmingly pleased when I received the letter saying place, etc. I had three wonderful years at Cambridge. What did you study? Mathematics. Ah, okay. I wanted, my whole career aspiration as a teenager was to become either a, an astronomer or a theoretical physicist because I've been fascinated by science from yeah, a very yeah. early age. The sad thing is at Cambridge, I realized that even though I've got an IQ which has been measured as putting me roughly in the top one in every 250 of the population, some of my mates at Cambridge doing maths with me were so much brighter, maybe <laughs> one in 10,000, etc. Yeah, I, I, know, I know the feeling. Yeah. And I realized if I went into the career that I wanted, I would never be any good in comparison. Mm. And that's a devastating blow when you've been so good at school. I had four A's at A-level at a time when A's were very rare to get even one A at A-level. And I had no plan B. I didn't know what else I wanted to do with my life. So I put off the decision by applying for a postgraduate certificate in education course at Leeds University. And I picked Leeds mainly because it had a Go club. Go is a Japanese board game that I played a lot in Cambridge. Right, I okay. still play Go. I have a one Dan Go diploma, amateur. Ah, okay. And so I did a PGC at Leeds. That started to rebuild my confidence. At Cambridge, I got a third eventually. Because right. when you're not going to do something as your life, it's hard to stay motivated on it. Mm. So gradually, I was interested in a smaller and smaller part of mathematics. So my sort of exam results gently declined in my three years mm. at Cambridge. So I got a third, which I'm totally open about. It's there on the website. At Leeds, I started to rebuild my self-confidence because I got a distinction in all the academic work past the teaching sort of, uh, you do a term teaching and so on, past that. And then applied for a job teaching. I was offered the first job that I applied for, which was at a comprehensive school in Oldham. And I taught okay. for a year. And I got better as I went along at that teaching, but I knew I never wanted to do it for a career. And all the teachers in the classroom said to me, I mean, if you don't want to do teaching long term, you shouldn't really be doing it short term because you get trapped. They felt trapped. There were people yeah, there yeah. who'd been teaching for three years and wanted out but felt they couldn't get out. Yeah. I had a wonderful stroke of luck halfway through the first term in the half-term holiday in Manchester Pub Central Library, Public Library. And I picked up a book called Accounting the Basis for Business Decisions by Meigs and Johnson, two American accounting professors read a few pages, looked interesting as part of the lending stock. What's it called? Accounting? Accounting the basis for business decisions. It's now out of print, although you can still buy second-hand copies of later editions. By The original one was Meigs and Johnson. Right. M-E-I-G-S. I'll see if I can find a link and then share it. Okay. And, well, there's a link on my website. You'll find it okay, quite easily. And I borrowed it. By the end of the half-term holiday, a week later, I had read all 900 pages. Wow. I then read the intermediate volume, the advanced volume, and I was hooked. I then did 
an accounting A-level as an external exam candidate without doing any kind of course. I just bought some past papers and I got a B in that. And that was just purely out of self-interest to see, you know, how well I could master the subject. And then my younger sister, who's six years younger than me, she said to me, I mean, if you're so interested in accounting, you want out of teaching, why do you train as an accountant? Go into it, yeah. That's right. Because I hadn't been thinking of doing that because it would mean three years more financial dependence on my parents and it mm. didn't feel right, but they were very encouraging. And so I trained as an accountant. And one of the funny things about the... Are you from Pakistan as well? Yeah, yeah. One yeah. of the funny things about the Pakistani Muslim community is that my social status went up when I went from being a fully qualified teacher to a trainee chartered accountant. Just a trainee. Yeah. No yeah. one qualified. Well, that doesn't matter. Really. <laughs> yeah. As long as you're an accountant. Yeah. And it, it, when you s apply in July for tra trainee places, all the big firms are full because they recruit a fixed yeah. rota. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't want to wait a year to start a, a training yeah. a big firm. So I took a place at a small firm, three-partner firm, uh, it split after 18 months. I did the last 18 months with a sole practitioner and qualified. During my exams, I came in the part one exams, I came fifth in the country out of nice. four and a half thousand candidates. And that finally rebuilt the damaged morale of yeah. going into a career of mathematics yeah, and realizing yeah. you weren't that great. Mm. It was a reminder that yes, you may not be great compared to some of your mates at Cambridge, but compared to even the average person who wants to become a chartered accountant, actually you're pretty good. Yeah. I also got interested in tax at that small firm. So after I qualified, I was, I was never going to stay there. I moved to Arthur Anderson, which was then the largest firm in the world, as a newly qualified junior tax specialist. And I spent six years there, became a manager. My first ever overseas visit anywhere was when I went to the Arthur Anderson New Manager School near Chicago in 1981. Until then, I hadn't left the country since I came here in 1952. Oh. Eventually, I got a bit fed up. Big firms can be quite restrictive. I joined a small firm for three and a half years, six partner firm in Wigan. Became a partner after 18 months. After another 18 months, I realized I hated it. Joined Price Waterhouse as a senior manager. Yeah. Again, social status and professional status. In the Manchester professional community, compared to being a partner in a small firm and being a senior manager in Price Waterhouse, your status goes up when you're Massive, a senior manager yeah. at Price Waterhouse. Yeah. In 1990, I became. And this was you were in Manchester, or all in Manchester, all in Manchester. Manchester. Oh, okay. In 1990, I became the second ethnic ethnic minority and first Muslim to become a partner in Price Waterhouse in the UK, and I stayed with the firm until I retired. Wow. Uh, eventually, became Price Waterhouse Coopers after the 1998 merger with Coopers and Librand. The last six and a half years of my career, I was an elected member of the firm's supervisory board. Mm. Basically, the, the way that the firm is managed is that the, the partners elect a senior partner, like a president, yeah. give him total powers, and then you have to elect something the equivalent of a Senate, a 15 person right. sort of governing body, yeah. just to keep an eye on him. Soundboarding, and yeah. yeah. Uh, well, they, are, they are quite serious powers. I mean, first yeah. of all, they set the pay of the senior partner. Right. So, yeah. our 15 partner committee was saying, how much the senior partner wow. earns. Uh, you can't admit a new partner without the approval of the supervisory board, you can't get rid of a partner, etc. You're there to stop management yeah. acting dictatorially, a bit like Parliament and Boris Johnson. <laughs> and so I retired at the end of 2009, and I did tax my entire career. I started getting interested in Islamic finance, again when I was in Hajj. Hmm. Uh, 
went on Hajj, booked, my wife and I booked a package with a company called Al Hidayah. Oh, we yeah. were the only people of our, that we knew who went on the trip. Yeah. So of course you turn up on the first day, there's loads of people, and people tend to sort of pair off. You mm. And I spent most of that sort of two weeks with a guy who was in his mid-30s. He had a PhD in biochemistry or something like that. He worked for a pharmaceutical company in middle management. And he didn't own his own house because he wouldn't take out a conventional mortgage. Right. He was a supporter of his book career. Right. And we spent most of the two weeks arguing about whether interest is haram, not haram. How, why, if interest is not okay, why is the equivalent for a murabaha transaction okay, yeah, yeah, etc. Yeah. So that's where the interest came from. I, before that, I knew about it vaguely, mm. but I never p paid any attention to it. And I spent three years struggling with that issue myself before reaching a landing, which we can talk about later on. And, but that's where the interest in Islamic finance came from. And then in 2005, when the, in Finance Act 2005, we brought in our first bit of direct tax legislation to do with Islamic finance to enable Islamic banks to operate. Yeah. And I was on the council of the Chartered Institute of Tax at that time, and I was asked to write a commentary on the t those provisions for the Butterworth, which is now LexisNexis Finance Act Handbook. Hmm. So I wrote a very short sort of two pages of A4 maybe summary. Yeah. And from that, it took over my professional life eventually. Wow. I was asked so to do was more, write about it, speak about it and yeah. so on. So just, um, you know, from, from my knowledge and yeah. also the, uh, my, audi my audience, um, this, this um, legislation, was this the uh, HPP, Home Purchase Plan stuff? Or um, much earlier than that. At its most basic, a Murabaha transaction is, you want to buy this phone, you can't afford it. Uh, I buy the phone from the Apple shop yeah. and for £600 and I sell it to you for £700 and you pay me in instalments. Yeah. And that transaction is religiously okay. The, the question is, have I made an account, a, a profit on that for tax purposes, which is a gain on selling a phone, and if so, what is yeah. the nature of my gain, or is it, or, I or is it the hundred pounds I'm going to earn from you some kind of interest income? Mm. And what essentially Islamic banks couldn't really operate in the UK unless those kinds of issues were clarified. Interesting. And this legislation in uh, 2005 dealt with Murabaha transactions and Madaraba transactions. Uh, basically, if a bank earns some money and pays you a share of that profit, what is the nature of that profit share? And so that's what I was writing a commentary about. Well, that's fascinating. And what, what legislation, I mean, this is not going to be interesting for our audience, yeah. but what legislation was that? That was originally financed at 2005, section 45 and 46. I still right. remember the section numbers. The legislation has since been rewritten because of the tax law rewrite project. Yeah. And you will find the corporation tax provisions in the Corporate Taxes Act, corporation, the Corporate Taxes Act 2009, and the income tax provisions in the income uh, tax Act 2007 from memory. Uh, right, okay. I'm slightly rusty right, now on section up, yeah. numbers. I, uh, I used to know section numbers all the time when I was practicing, but of course I haven't done it for 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, of course. Yeah, sorry, I knocked you off your floor. Right. So you did that, yeah. um, set up the, you know, the, the landscape for Islamic banks. And well, I was just writing a commentary. Yeah. That was already happening, but then you get introduced to the scene. I was asked to speak at an Islamic finance conference and you get asked to speak more, write more. And it also, 
within a couple of years, I realised that Price Waterhouse Coopers was utterly un in the UK was utterly uncoordinated on Islamic finance. Mm. If a, a bid, a, requ a request for a tender for a piece of work came in, whichever partner's desk it landed on tried to handle it. There was no organisation or coordination, mm. and I realised we needed a head of Islamic finance mm. to coordinate internally and to project to the outside world. Uh, realistically, the only person who was best equipped to do that was me, mm. and I also knew the job could only be done from London. Mm. Once I persuaded the firm's senior partner and executive board th that they agreed with me, mm. it then meant relocating from our Manchester office to our London office for the first so three months I was renting in hotel rooms and so on, while my wife did the flat hunting, right. and then we bought a flat in London, which I bought rather than renting, because I knew when I was retired I would still want to be in London for mm. the other things that I'm interested in. And so I did that for the last two years of my career, and I travelled the world sp speaking about Islamic finance. I've spoken in over 20 non-UK cities wow. on every continent except Antarctica. Well, hopefully that can maybe change at some point as well. <laughs> well the penguins <laughs> are not that interested. And they, they don't think there's any tax law in Antarctica either. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I mean, that's quite a nice point to kind of jump into, um, you know, your thoughts about Islamic banks generally. Yeah. Um, where, you know, where they've, what the journey they've been on um, and also where you think we're headed in the future, right. um, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the UK, mm -hmm. but then possibly also, you know, globally. Right. Because uh, I know I saw your analysis on you know your, the accounts of Rasmallah yeah. and uh, IBB, which is now Rayan, mm -hmm. um, and I think you've done a few others yeah. historically as well. So um, yeah, it'd be interesting to hear. Your well, let's start with the UK, and then we can yeah, remove overseas afterwards. In the UK, the first Islamic bank to be established was a retail bank, originally called Islamic Bank of Britain, and now called Al Rayan after yeah. takeover by the Kuwaitis. Then there were a collection of investment banks set up in London whose business goal was international, global, and London just happens to be a convenient and sensible place to put an investment bank. Yeah. Uh, especially while we're inside the European Union, separate issues you know, on Brexit. I believe that Islamic Bank of Britain fundamentally overestimated the size of the retail Islamic finance market in mm. the UK. Because I, mean, I, I know the management quite well, but I, I'd, I, this is public information and my guesswork rather than any kind of private information yeah. that they've given me. And I want to stress that. So this is just my guesswork. I, I think the basic mindset was there are about 3 million Muslims in the UK. That's not a massive number, but no. nevertheless, it's a reasonable market. And let's yeah. go for it and they like branches, so we'll set up physical branches. And the reason why that's an overestimate as a sort of an addressable market is that first of all, you have to do start doing some easy eliminations. Eliminate the young, pe mm. people who are just too young to have any money. Yeah. And demographically, of course, the Muslim community is much younger in terms of its age profile than the white British community. About half, yeah, yeah. half, yeah. Eliminate the people who haven't got much money anyway. Then you've got the people who are sort of financially addressable. Mm. And then Muslims fall into th not two categories, but three categories. There are Muslims who, even if they don't think conventional banking is sort of perfect, are perfectly willing to use it. Mm. There are Muslims who don't 
approve of conventional banking for religious reasons, but will use Islamic banking as operated by mm. Islamic Bank of Britain in this country and Islamic banks in the Middle East, Malaysia, yeah. etc. But then there's a third category which often gets overlooked and forgotten, and I think is actually one of their biggest obstacles. And that is those people who don't believe in conventional banking for religious reasons, but who also have a strong religious objection to Islamic banking as done in the real world, mm. and instead want some other kind of Islamic banking, which they think is religiously better, but which doesn't make sense for any Islamic bank to provide. Mm. And I became very conscious of that when I was uh, involved with the Muslim Council of Britain and we had a complaint from an organization called the Muslims of Norwich about a, a march that uh, the Secretary General had been on in London against excessive interest, etc. It was a cross-religious march. The Church of England was involved, everybody, and right. it, the argument was about excessive interest and so on. And these people, their letter of complaint was that Dr. Bari shouldn't have been complaining about excessive interest, she'd be complaining about any interest. But that complaint also went on to talk about the so-called Islamic banks. And that's when I really started thinking about what underlies their thinking. And this third category is often overlooked. Mm. And they are not part of your addressable market either. Yeah. So what you're left with is that group in the middle. Yeah. I don't have a handle on percentages. I haven't seen any opinion polling, etc. But I think that is quite a small addressable market. Yeah. No, and that's why the that. bankers struggled. I mean, if they've uh, hit 85,000 bank accounts yeah. or customers mm. uh, since you know right now, mm. and a big chunk of them are going to be non-Muslims mm. who are attracted by the savings account. Yeah. So, so actually, I mean, given you know the three, three and a half million Muslims there are, mm. I agree with you that it's it's quite a you know poor kind of return. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not sure that's necessarily down to the bank itself. I'm sure there's obviously like any institution they can improve on things. Mm. Um, certainly, I think there's a lot to be said about you know going for the digital challenger bank type route mm. where they increase the onboarding and make it just a lot quicker yeah. and a lot more painless um, which I think probably increase numbers but but I, th I think you're right I think there's something there about um, you know thinking about this market and how big it actually is mm. um, but yeah sorry to you know interrupt right. so you were explaining about the UK market yeah. generally and I mean the other reason they've struggled financially is, is it was simply too small uh, if you look at my article analysing the historical accounts of Islamic Bank of Britain, it was so small that it, could have, it couldn't take on very much risk. It actually acquired, it was quite successful at attracting deposits, mm. but it was very unsuccessful at basically then using the money to finance customers. Mm. And a bank that is rich in deposits but hasn't got much in the way of real commercial assets struggles. Trouble, yeah. yeah, and then, then you've got the overheads as well. Since they got a big injection of extra capital from Qatar when Al Rayyan took them yeah. over, they've been able to expand into household mortgages in a very big way. Mm. And that has meant that they are now starting to look at least vaguely decent in terms of return mm. on equity and they are profitable yeah. because they've got this extra capital. Not only does that extra capital mean there's more shareholder capital earning some money, mm. but secondly, it's been able to, they've been able to change their asset mix. Mm. What do you mean by change their asset mix? Well, as I said before, they they weren't doing home mortgages. Right. They okay. they just they were they couldn't afford to take on very much risk. Now they've got a, a very big home purchase plan of portfolio. Course, yeah. That's why they did their sukkah issue yeah. and so on. Yeah, I think they might be wrong, but I think they might be planning another one at some point. 
Um, and where do you think the you know where do you think we're headed as a kind of Islamic finance community, um, both in the UK and, and globally? Well, it will settle down at a percentage of the market. Uh, what's interesting, if you look at a place like Bahrain, it, mm. which has been a pioneer for Islamic banking for a long time, I can't remember what the percentage, I haven't looked at the percentages recently, but the last time I looked at them, Bahrain had about a 40% Islamic, 60% conventional. Right, yeah. You're never going to get to 100%. There's, uh, the no. only places you get to 100% are countries like Iran and Sudan, where conventional banking is prohibited by law. Yeah. But otherwise, there's always a big chunk of Muslims who don't have a problem with conventional banking as mm. done. Mm. And, uh, but the reason why I've always felt passionate about evangelizing for Islamic finance is that I think about not just the, peop the people who are keeping their money under the mattress because they will not put it into a bank. Mm. They earn no return on it, they're exposed to the risk of loss. Even worse are Muslims who for religious reasons will not buy life insurance. Mm. When a man who's got a wife and dependent children dies suddenly young and has no life insurance because he believes that life insurance is religiously prohibited, mm. that is a disaster. Mm. And if by providing family takaful, which is effectively life insurance yeah. in a sort of different wrapper, different yeah. structure, you can stop that kind of disaster happening, that is worth doing because you can preach to him forever saying there's nothing religiously wrong with life insurance. But yeah. if he doesn't believe that, he doesn't believe it. He's not going to change, yeah. Agreed. I mean, I, I take the kind of minority view that it is okay to take mm. life insurance, yeah. insurance, uh, and we get a lot of... So uh, do I. Yeah. Mm. We get a lot of, uh, you know, traffic on, on those pages yeah. that discuss that, because mm -hmm. I think there's, it's, it is a minority view, but mm. I mean, I, I agree with you as well on this, that it, it just, you know, if you actually look into it um, from an Islamic yeah. perspective, I don't think there is mm. actually a problem. Um, but yeah, agreed. I mean, mm. the Garfield and cooperative insurance is... Yeah. From an ethical perspective, it is mm. obviously preferable, yeah. um, regardless of your views of, uh, mm. you know, whether or not it's permissible or not. Mm. Um, I'd be interested. I mean, to um, you know, before we kind of wrap up, and we've talked a lot about Islamic finance. Yeah. Um, to touch upon, you know, your your journey into politics, mm -hmm. um, and specifically the kind of you know crossover. Uh, and the cross-pollination that there is between politics and business and mm. do, would you encourage people you know uh, just you know in of itself to go into politics or get involved and also um, instrumentally do you think that there's benefits for business to be in conversation right. with politics? Okay, well, first of all my own personal interest in politics comes again from a very very early age I was a very must have been a peculiar child I, we used to keep a journal at school in primary school and just to encourage our writing and things like that. And I still remember one particular journal entry, although I can't place the age I was when I wrote it, but I must have been about nine or something. I'd seen something in the news on television that Russia now had Polaris-type missiles. Right, you know, these yeah. are submarine-launched ballistic missiles. Okay. But, you know, I, I was nine or thereabouts. I know for certain when I was ten... I got my mother to wake me up two hours early, so 6 a.m. rather than my regular 8 a.m., because I wanted to get the result of the U.S. presidential election as early as possible. Because I'd followed the campaign. I mean, that was Kennedy-Nixon, and Kennedy yeah. was glamorous. And if you imagine looking at him 
through the eyes of a 10-year-old in the UK, yeah. obviously you would sort of be Sport, attracted yeah. and support him. When I was 14, I stayed up all night to watch the election results, for both for the UK general election and the American presidential election. So I've been a politics junkie from a very early age. The key advice I would give young people is this. Be very, very careful about the amount of your time that you can spend on politics compared to pursuing your career. Because it's important to think about yourself. Personal success sounds selfish, it's not. You can't help other people if you are struggling yourself. Mm. And the airline safety videos that you've seen so, many, so often, if you're traveling with a child or another person, put your own oxygen mask on first before you try to help the other person put mm. their oxygen mask on. And that's the key advice I always give young people, that their lives, their career, their families have to come first and then think about what else you can do. So you can always spend some money paying a membership subscription for a political party. That's always a good thing to do. Yeah. If nothing else, it gives you a chance to vote in the leadership election, as we saw this yeah. year with the Conservative Party. Mm. 160,000 people decided who was the Prime Minister. Yeah. You could have been one of them if you'd been a member of the Conservative Party. Yeah. So you can always pay the subscription. You can vote, that, that never takes any effort. I was, I've had a postal vote for ages to cut down the effort further. And, but beyond that, ration your time very carefully in terms of going out leafleting, campaigning. You can do a little bit, but don't allow it to take over your life unless you mm. want to be a full-time politician. Mm -hmm. And um, what do you think you've gained um, from you know, being involved politically? over the years as an individual, but also in terms of your career as well? Career-wise, I've gained nothing at all. Okay. As an individual, though, I've learned a lot of extra skills, uh, ability to do sort of television interviews, mm. for example. Uh, I've met people. And did you just learn that as you did it, or was uh, it? No, uh, Price Waterhouse, as soon as I became a partner, a year later, all partners get the opportunity to go on media training. Oh, okay, cool. I've had media training courtesy of the Chartered Institute of Tax. I've had other media training courtesy of PwC. I've had media training courtesy of the Muslim Council of Britain. You've, right, they yeah. organize a course. You pay sort of 50, 20 quid or something to cover the cost of the food. Yeah. But it's, the trainer provides his time free, okay. etc. Any time, time I get a chance to get media training or public speaking training, I take it. Even a year ago, I paid 80 quid through the Chartered Institute of Tax for four courses on public speaking. And I learned things even then, although I've been doing public speaking since I was 30. Yeah. You can always learn more. Mm. So, but the most important thing is the psychological benefit of knowing that you're trying to do something to help your fellow man, because that's what politics is all about. Yeah. Politics is about how the country is run, we want it run as well as possible for everybody. Uh, as a Muslim, I care about the way that Muslims are treated in this country. I care about how Jews are treated. I, I'm yeah. the co-chair of the Muslim Jewish Forum of Greater Manchester. If good people don't get involved with politics, politics is dominated by the bad people. Mm. It's as basic as that. Yeah. Yeah, I, All that is yeah. necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Mm. I, so I joined the Labour Party a few years ago and you know to be honest I've not been that involved mm -hmm. um, over the last few years but um, uh, I agree I think right now my my impression of interacting with you know the political classes uh, or people who are involved in political activism is that 
is a very specific kind of person mm-hmm. and um, you know they're, they're, they're the kind of people who would get involved in student politics at university yeah. and that's often quite either very idealist mm-hmm. or very careerist mm-hmm. and I don't think either of those things are you know particularly helpful yeah. um, and uh, you know I, I then kind of you know got in disenchanted to some ex- you know to some extent and mm. uh, have kind of you know, not really been as, as involved in politics, mm. uh, but you're right. I mean, I think I think that all of us have that duty, even if you know you don't necessarily want to, you know, hang out with certain kind of people in politics. Mm. Uh, if you're not there, they're still making the decisions. That's right. Uh, so I, I take that point. Mm. Um, but the key thing is maintaining that balance between your professional career as a lawyer mm. and making sure that this. You don't do anything to jeopardise that yeah. while spending a bit of time on politics. Uh, that's that's an interesting point, actually. About you know, you're talking about your career. So you've been obviously very successful, Marshall, in your yeah. career. You've risen to the your partnership at one of the biggest four accountancy firms yeah. in the world, uh, and you actually got to the kind of really top end mm. where you're overseeing the guy who runs it. Yeah. Um, and you know, to do that, you have to put in time you have to yep. really love your job and your profession mm. um, well that's what makes putting in the time easy if yeah. you really enjoy what you're doing and i always did yeah you don't feel it's a burden clearly if you're i mean i've had many occasions where you work all day saturday you work all day sunday uh you you, you work through sunday night mm. i mean on several occasions i've had to work all the way through the day the night and the following afternoon and you you crash away hmm. about five o'clock in the afternoon totally brain dead yeah. don't didn't do it regularly but i did it in enough times yeah. you know it wasn't just a sort of one-off hmm. but you can only do that if you're really passionate about what you're doing yeah yeah agreed and as you know a, a lot of our listeners will be students at university or you know recent graduates thinking yeah. about how to plan their career what are your thoughts about um you know i, I, I suppose you've answered it in, in one way but what are your thoughts about uh sticking it out and trying to you know get to the top of your career versus um, going laterally doing something like you know starting your own business or uh, working on you know something else uh, as a kind of lateral move well none of those are meant to be easy alternatives starting your business your own business is a really exciting interesting thing to do and part of it comes down to options that you've got available so Coming from a very poor family, with absolutely no money in the family, parents that were then dependent on you, etc. Mm. Uh, it's a very different choice to abandon a professional career and, and start up something which, if it crashes and fails, you've got nothing. Yeah, yeah. So that's one reason why I never contemplated it. Apart from the fact I, I really love what I was doing and mm. it was pretty well paid. Yeah. So uh, conversely, my eldest son who's approaching, he'll be 40 next year, he's a full-time writer. And sometimes you do well, you sell a book, uh, sometimes you can be spending many, several years actually earning not very much, he's not married, he doesn't want to get married. Uh, but he's got that option because he knows that it actually, he's got a home, he's got a house, uh, he's, not, he's never going to be on the bread line simply because he's got me as his dad. Yeah. So people have different options and uh, available depending on their background. Bill Gates, mm. founder of Microsoft, 
he his father wasn't you know super wealthy but he was actually pretty rich mm. so bill gates could afford to drop out of his college he was at harvard but he dropped yeah. out to set up microsoft mm. if he'd been his own family circumstances had been different he might have made different choices yeah so do you think then that um you know given the muslim community about half of the muslim community i think it's 44% of the muslim community live in the 10% or so poorest constituencies yeah. Do you think it's almost a responsibility on people who have come from more affluent backgrounds to take a risk? And I mean, obviously, if they're actually into it uh, and you know trying to you know set up something that can really add value to the Muslim community. Well, if you're in a situation where you can afford to take some more risk, then it's logical that you should think mm. about taking some more risk. Uh, but I would say my message is slightly stronger than that. There's a responsibility in everybody, regardless of whether they come from a wealthy background or a really poor background, mm. to make the very best of themselves. And what mm. really annoys me is when you see young people frittering their time away yeah. rather than trying to learn and advance themselves. It doesn't mean you spend all your time studying. I, I was never like that. I'm, yeah. I've been a chess player since the age of nine. I used to play a lot of cricket and football with my maids, table tennis, you name it. I've, I've had plenty of time enjoying myself, mm. but enjoying yourself can't be 100% of your time when you're not at school or mm. not, mm -hmm. not inside a formal classroom. You have to really allocate a lot of your time to other things. Yeah. And the same is true now in retirement. I spend a, an enormous amount of time absorbing new information, reading things, I'm reading a, the book I'm carrying around because I've got a little gap between now and my next schedule. Uh, if I finish on my email and so on on the phone, it's a book, it's a trialogue, a conversation between a Muslim imam, uh, a Jewish rabbi, and a Christian priest about a whole range of you know, Abrahamic faith issues. Uh, I'm reading a book about Nazi Germany and their attitude to Muslims and how they sought to recruit Muslims during the Second World War. Right. Because that sort of thing is often brought up by Benjamin Netanyahu a few yeah. years ago. He was trying to claim that the Holocaust was really the fault of Muhammad Amin, uh, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. Right. Utter rubbish. And yeah. he was laughed out of court by Jewish historians yeah. in Israel. But it, there is an enormous obligation on all of us to learn Mm. as much as we can while still enjoying ourselves yeah no thank you very much i right. mean um i think that's um that's we've covered a lot of ground yeah. today and it's been uh, i think quite a unique insight into i think one of the uh, you know real contributors uh, i think i'd want to call you to our community over the last you know three four five decades thank you uh mashallah and um you know jazakallah for all the effort that you've right. done i think there's there's a lot of key things that you've done that you know, for example, this banking thing mm. that has paved the way for um, you know what you know our generation is building mm. upon, um, and I think we can we can learn a lot from that. Uh, so Jazakallah khairan. And um, is is there a way that our audience, if they have any questions for you, they can reach out to you um, either on I don't know Twitter yes. or your website. Uh, there's many ways of reaching me. Uh, I'm very accessible. If you Google my name, you'll yeah. find my website. Anyway, it's MohammedAmin.com. M O H A M M E D I mean, A-M-I-N dot com. On that website is a contact me page, which has a, li a link directly to my Twitter account, my Facebook account, my LinkedIn account, and 
an email address which is human readable but not machine readable. Right. So there's a little recatcher you have to get Fine. past, but otherwise there's an email address. And I do get emails out of the blue from complete strangers asking for advice. And if I can, I always try to answer them. Mm. I've occasionally mentored complete strangers by telephone. And it's very rewarding when six months later somebody tells you they've got a job because they yeah. spoke to you. Yeah. I sometimes meet people to provide pro bono mentoring. Fantastic. Mm. Well, if you, uh, you, know, you, you know how to reach Amin now, uh, <laughs> and I think he'll be a valuable person for many of you. Um, Jazakallah khairan, uh, and assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.